The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 230 for Sunday, December 13th, 2009. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab. I'm Dave Hamilton here in Chile, Durham, New Hampshire. And on the other end, uh, hmm, on the other end is <laughs> <laughs> sounds like you didn't have enough caffeine. Uh, John F. Braun here in not quite as chilly. Uh, I think I think we just got over freezing right now. I just looked at the thermometer. It's thirty two point something now. Oh, so I, we're actually a little warmer than you here. It's uh, it was really? ten. It was ten degrees when I got up at uh, seven this morning to take my son to hockey. But uh, but now it's it's like thirty three or something. Yep. So this is this is the this is a great day to stay inside and you know Podcast. podcasts yeah. or uh, you know curl up with a good book or watch some movies or something. Light a fire. That's what that's what I'll do when we finish our uh, our I'm podcasting not. our marathon podcasting today. And, and we do we uh, there, there's we do have some stuff that we're we're excited to tell you about. But we're I think we should just get right into the show and then we'll and then we'll kind of you know we'll get our groove on and then we'll go from there because all this caffeine and sunlight is uh, is a little bit jarring. For, uh, I, I for podcasting day. All right. Uh, let's start with some tips. Uh, we had some follow-ups from our last show. We were discussing translucency in the menu bar. And uh, we talked about a very interesting way to get uh, to get a bar, menu bar untranslucent in Mac OS X Leopard. And uh, many of you wrote in. Dave was one of them. And Dave's, Dave's answer was, was actually a little bit ironic. Dave said, uh, 10 point, uh, Mac OS 10 10.5.2 added the option to make the menu bar opaque so you don't need Snow Leopard or any tips or tricks for this one. And then he goes on to show us that uh, you might recognize the source of this article. And of course, he points us to a MacObserver.com article that tells us all about this. So, yes, clearly, uh, John, you and I missed that. And uh, and those of you Leopard users, if you don't like the translucency in the menu bar, as long as you're at 10.5.2 or later, you can go right on and uh, and and uh, change that. The same place is in uh, in Snow Leopard. Right. Desktop and screensaver, desktop and translucent menu bar. Check or uncheck. So uh, I, I think we, we were just uh, because of the trauma of us both running into this in, in 10.5, whatever. And I think both you and I did the. The hack around. I didn't. I liked didn't. it, but but I do remember really. Looking for oh, okay. It. And, and I, I didn't. I should so point I out it immediately. I should point out that the machine that I'm running is actually running ten five whatever, and it has that checkbox. So I, I should uh, I should have been. Anyway, thanks, Dave, and everybody, Ben, Tom, everybody else. That uh, was uh, that was helpful. All right, Steve has an interesting suggestion here. Uh, and we'll let Steve go on and, and talk about it, but then we'll talk about the implications of it. So, Hey guys, Steve down here in Dallas, Texas, uh, commenting on the iPod Touch. The guy wanting to buy iPod Touches for his girls for Christmas and only having the Lamp iMac. Uh, you guys were stumbling right on it there with the Firewire. If you remember, the first generation iPods had uh, Firewire dock cables. I don't know if those are still available or if you can find them anywhere, but that might be an alternative to um, an iPod or a Firewire to USB bridge, if that's made. As always, love the show. Keep it up. And this is where you cut me off. 
I got him. All right. Um, you want to talk about this a little bit, John? I think it's an awesome suggestion. Except? <laughs> Except it won't work. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I did, I did a, a, a bit of searching online, and um, here's why it won't work. So, um, so you can certainly, and I think you, you mentioned this, Dave, in your experience, uh, that what you can do with the FireWire Cradle, if you do have a FireWire one, is it will still charge, so the power pins are still there. As far as I know, but I, but I looked and basically in the newer iPods, either they disabled or I don't even think they have a FireWire chip anymore. So they won't. So you're saying it will charge, but not sync. Right. And I found I just did a quick search on, you know, iPod touch FireWire and basically everything I come up with says, nope. Yeah. So I think uh, the first generation iPhone will charge this way. Uh, it is not recommended. Apple, in fact, specifically recommends against it. However, our experience here at the uh, Hamilton Homestead uh, is that it works just fine. However, the newer 3G and 3GS iPhones do not allow charging this way, and they will specifically say so when you plug one of these adapters in. Yeah, and I found the same thing. It said, yeah, iPod Touch 2, 2G and prior. So, um... Yeah, yeah, right. So, so the thing is, yeah, maybe if you get an older one, it will go on FireWire. But if you buy the current product, um, yeah, if anything, it'll just say, duh, I, I can't do this. Yeah. And, and, and based on everything we've seen, even if it charges, it won't sync. So, uh, and we had a couple of people write in about this. So, yeah, I don't, I don't think there is a magic, uh, you know, FireWire to USB answer that's going to work for, uh, for syncing an iPhone or an iPod Touch with a USB 1.x capable mac so all right yeah. i mean you may want to you know i mean this may be a good chance because i believe the the you know the person that wanted to get this uh, wanted to get it for for the kids right you know what but why not throw in a nice mac mini or something in in, in the bundle there yeah, triple Seriously. triple the price triple the price of the ipod touch and uh, oh but they'll love it yeah that's true <laughs> uh, it, yeah yeah. And we also talked about, and I think, Dave, we're, we're, we're still, you know, getting feedback on this. I, I speculated there may be either an Ethernet to USB or FireWire to USB. And some people sent links to things that, that I didn't recognize the vendor, but, but claimed to be FireWire to USB converters. So um, I haven't found anything that anybody has been able to stand behind saying, you know, definitely. Uh, some people just did, I think, some casual searches and, uh, and again, found things that looked like Brand X Yep. You know, who who the heck knows if it's going to work. So uh, yeah. I, I don't know if that direction is, you know, well, we'll see. Cheaper than a mini uh, it is perhaps get, you know, one of those netbooks, right? Like a, a Dell mini 10 V, oh. right? Oh. Because you can get them for like 260 at, re, on the refurb store. And I know this because my daughter actually, she she got a pile of money for her uh, birthday recently. And, and she announced to us that she's 10. Uh, I think I'm going to buy a laptop. Uh, and she said, I, I want to get one of these little Dells because they're cheap. And she said to me, Macs are expensive, dude. And uh, <laughs> and of course, you know, in, in that price range, she's right that, you know, you can't get a Mac for that range. And I said, well, OK, wait a minute, slow down. You know, first of all, your mother and I need to decide whether or not at 10 you're allowed to have a laptop. And number two, uh, you're going to want to run Mac OS 10 on this thing. So we, we're going to want to, you know, figure that out. <laughs> Uh, but, but, uh, you know, the Dell 10 V's, the mini 10 V looks like it'll, it'll do it for, and, uh, and they're about 300 bucks new and, and you can get them for about 260 or 270 on their refurb store. And their refurb store is the same as Apple's where it's, you know, you get the same one year warranty and, and all that good stuff. So, uh, so it, it, 
I guess where this is leading is two two places. One, instead of the Mac Mini, you could go this route and uh, and hack and tosh it up, and and that way you've got your USB ports. But number two is there will be a future show here where uh, we're we're going to discuss this because I'm pretty sure uh, my wife and I have decided to let my daughter do this, and and in fact. Uh, we may, we may surprise her with a gift to herself on, uh, on Christmas day. Cause we told her she had to wait till after Christmas. So hopefully she doesn't listen to the show, but I don't think she does. So I can't believe you su- you're suggesting a netbook though, Dave. I'm, I'm very disappointed. I think a netbook would be a perfect machine for her. <laughs> and if Apple had one, it would still be too expensive. So, you know how it goes. Yeah. Um, but she's right. Apple, I don't think is interested in, in playing in that space. Well, we'll see, you know, there's the mythical tablet, John. So yeah, yeah. Well, I don't think that's going to be cheap Mm-mm. no i don't think it's going to play in that space I, I think you're absolutely right yeah yeah so all right all right uh you know I, okay we, so we've got our we've got our groove on here there is something uh that john and i want to want to talk to you about we've we've been talking about this for for a little while here and and we have a couple of things that that go on one is that we have a ton of questions that we simply aren't able to get to uh, and we have to prioritize and we, we always do. And we try to pick things that, that are uh, at least tangentially accessible to to all of you. Uh, and 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 then, of course, we have many of our listeners who clamor for more content, either longer shows or simply more shows. Uh, I don't think many of you care which way we do that. Uh, so John and I sort of hemmed and hawed about this for a while and we've come up with a solution and I believe we're going, as long as the technology all works, and I think it will, uh, I believe we'll roll this tomorrow with uh, Mac Geek Up number 231, which we will record uh, after, of course, we finish 230. And Mac Geek Up 231, John, and all our listeners, John already knows, will introduce the Mac Geek Up Premium. This will be an extra two shows per month, at least. Uh, if we wind up doing more, there's more. Uh, and it will be $25 for a six-month membership that gets you all that extra content. In addition, the archives will uh, be freely accessible up to six months back, and then premium subscribers will have access to the full archive. So Mac Geek Up Premium coming out Monday, December 14th. You heard it here first. $25 for six months, and uh, and you get an extra two shows a month. And then, of course, uh, you get all the, the sponsored shows, which uh, which will remain uh, intact as uh, as you know them. So if you choose not to sub- sub- uh, choose not to, to subscribe for the premium version, you'll still get exactly what you're getting now, which is the you know one show a week, on and on and on. Um, now, I'm it, asking it, myself, Dave. Go ahead. Yeah, there, there is something I, I want to say about our sponsors, but but go ahead, John. I, okay, go ahead. But what I like to ask is, how would I access this? Um, is is it much different than than I do it right now? Well, right now there's two ways. Either you can go into iTunes and find us, or you can paste in. Uh, you know, like people do now, if you want the MP3 feed, you got to paste that in manually into, uh, so, so what are the mechanics of this? Uh, can you, are you still doing iTunes for this or, or what? Yeah. Okay. So you won't find this in iTunes because iTunes does not, uh, allow podcasts to be published as part of their pay thing. They're, they're only free in, in iTunes. So, uh, in the iTunes store, and it, this is, it's important okay. to, to delineate between the iTunes, the store and the iTunes app. Uh, so what you will do is you'll go on to MacObserver.com. If you already have an account uh, to post uh, comments on the articles or in the forums, uh, then you will simply go through the process of paying the 25 bucks. We're using PayPal, uh, and hopefully that'll work for everybody. If it doesn't, we can open up more payment options. But out of the gate, we're using PayPal. 
And you can either do 25 bucks for a recurring subscription that'll recur every six months, or you can do a one time, you know, that, that's your choice. And once you sign up, then your account at TMO will be authenticated and privileged. And then you'll have access to a feed. You can add that feed to iTunes. In fact, we should have a one click ad that, that I think works just fine. iTunes will the first time ask you for your password and username uh, that you use at TMO. And then uh, from that point on, you can have it save it in the keychain, and it'll just it'll work just like you're you're used to. And we'll have two feeds. We'll have an MP3 feed. We'll have an AAC feed. Uh, and the premium feeds will include everything. They'll include all the shows that that come out, the sponsored shows that come out, and the premium shows. So you get it all in one place. So you can just have your continuity and and roll from there. Um, there was something in there that I wanted to mention but my four hours of sleep is catching up mm -hmm. with me. Okay. That's good to know. So it's okay. going to be uh, from a, on your iPod or iTunes. It's going to be the same experience. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have a TMO account, uh, if you, you know, if you haven't uh, participated in the comments or forums there, that's fine. You'll be given the opportunity to sign up for one as part of the, the payment process to, to get yourself there. And uh, okay. So do you have any other questions, John? Cause I, there is one other thing I want to say, but, I want to get through the mechanics of this. No, first. that's about it. So I'm, so I'm glad the, yes, yeah, so the mechanics is, is nothing more than, yeah, clicking on a link or pasting a link into, into iTunes software. Yeah. We've had Steven working on this for a while. Uh, my goal has been to make this very, very simple, very straightforward. Uh, that obviously is good for all of you. And it's also good for us. I mean, we, you know, we don't want to make this a burden on, uh, on anyone, you know, to, to make it work from a technical standpoint. Uh, we certainly, you know, many of you have asked for a donations button in the past, uh, and we've sort of kind of avoided that question entirely. Some of you have been very creative about it and found ways to send us money or gifts or, uh, you know, gift certificates or anything like that. And we certainly appreciate that. Uh, but we really wanted to make sure, you know, if we opened that door that we were giving you something for, for that, uh, which you were supporting us. Now, I know some of you feel like we're already doing that, and I certainly appreciate that. And I know John does, too. But uh but we wanted to, you know, to, to create a, a package for you. And, and so that's that's what this is. As it has been, we will morph it. Uh, remember, Mac Geek Gab didn't start out being what it is today. Uh, it took us three or four episodes to figure out that this was the right way to do this. And you can go back and listen to those. No. <laughs> or not. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but, you know, it, it's um, it, it, you know, we will morph that to to, to kind of meet the needs of the uh, of the premium subscribers and. And I think we're going to have a lot of fun with it. That being said, I don't want to diminish the value and support that our sponsors have given us and continue to give us and, and will give us in the future. We have very much appreciated that. We've been doing this four and a half years. We've had sponsors almost since the very beginning, and it's worked out very, very well. This is simply another path. We're not we're not giving up on our sponsors uh, by by no stretch. Are we giving up on our sponsors? This is you know, this is in addition to that and a separate thing. And there will be no sponsors in the uh, in the premium shows. Those will those will that will will kind of keep that that divide there. So, but we do very much appreciate the support support of our sponsors and the way that you've supported our sponsors. We try to make sure that we have sponsors in the show uh, that meet your needs and and hopefully that offer products that at least interest you and and that you'll go and check out and then you know if you find you use it then you go and you buy it. So that's uh, that's where we are. Any any other questions there, John? No questions. I'm, right. I'm looking forward to the, the next chapter in yeah. 
Yeah, that's really what it is. It, the it, Mackie Cab story. It's chapter two, and and we want to keep the Mackie Cab story going on. And this is, th- frankly, this is a big part of that. So, uh, so we appreciate and look forward to your support. And if you have any questions, you know where to reach us. I, I think this is a good time to uh, talk about our first sponsor for this show uh, because we do appreciate them. And this is a sponsor that's been with us for a very long time. Barebones software at barebones.com. We're talking today about one of my favorite products, and that is Yojimbo. Yojimbo version two is what's out right now. Yojimbo is a place to organize all this stuff that doesn't otherwise have a home. If you've got, you know, a little snippet of text that you want to save but you don't want to start a Word document for it. Or perhaps you already have. And perhaps you've got three or four Word documents where you just sort of star, store random bits of text and maybe even pictures that you paste in. Eh, but, you know, it's not really organized all that well. And then maybe you've got some PDFs, uh, you know, or, or whatever. Yojimbo is the place to do this. It is a blank slate when you start with it. You just start putting documents in. You can put them in by dragging them to a little... Yojimbo tab that you can have appear at the side of your screen. You can print to a PDF that will then automatically get filed into Yojimbo. And you can name your collections. So you can have, you know, like for me, I use it to prep the Mac Geekab, John, and I'll, I have a, an MGG collection and I throw all of the PDFs for our emails and even the, the show notes with the audio files b- baked right into it right there in Yojimbo. It then syncs with .Mac and beams up to Yojimbo on the machine here in the studio, and it works just fine. So uh, you can also store serial numbers, and it's got a special format to store serial numbers in Yojimbo. So for all that software that you have, you can store that there too. Yojimbo is available from barebones.com. It is, of course, available for a free trial. Uh, they are up to version 2.1. Once you're ready to buy, it's 39 bucks. Uh, that's it. 39 bucks and you're good to go. I've been using it for probably three years. When it, whenever it came out, I started using it about two hours after that and I have not stopped. So uh, 39 bucks. If you've got an older version and you want to upgrade, it's another 20 bucks, uh, $69 for a family pack. And if you're a student or otherwise a teacher or otherwise involved in educational institution, 29 bucks. So yo, Jimbo 2.1 from barebones.com. Ready to move on to Thomas. I'm ready. All right, let's go. Hey, John and Dave. This is Thomas at Mac SST. Just wanted to make a comment about Mac GeekGab228 when you're talking, uh, answering the fellow's question who was asking about backing up a time machine and making a bootable clone on the same drive. And sure, you can do that. And uh, if you only have one drive, it's, uh, it's fine to partition it and uh, make one partition the, the bootable clone. But there is an excellent reason for making uh adding a second drive as as john suggested it's not just the space it's a fact that you only have a if you're doing it on one drive you only have a single point of failure so if your drive goes down you lose your time machine and you lose your your uh, bootable clone the um drives are, are pretty cheap these days i would the best thing really to do is get a two drives that are external one that you use a time machine and one that uses a bootable clone and try to make sure that the bootable clone is a drive that you can take out and put in your main machine just replace the drive um, your main drive if it goes down 
that's really the, the best way to do. You'll be up and, 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 uh, and wor working again in a matter of minutes. Whereas if you have it on the same drive, you have to buy a new one. Um, that takes time. And then you have to, you know, clone it over. And that takes time. If you really want to do it the, the right way and have two backups, you um, use two drives. It's really the best way to go. Thanks a lot, guys, for the great show. Yeah, thanks, Thomas, and thanks uh, everyone else that uh, that wrote in with exactly that uh, that same concern. The uh, single point of failure. It's excellent, excellent point. Yeah, well, that, that's what I meant. <laughs> no, <laughs> very nice. No, I mentioned it for more uh, ease of implementation versus uh, single point of failure. But actually, I've seen this, and and to comment on this a little bit is. Um, what I've seen in a lot of enterprises, and actually, uh, I had do this for a while, but uh, other people, you know, when doing backups uh, uh, on an enterprise level, we actually had a system where, where I work, we have two major buildings. One is that the individual, now he was using tape and not hard drives, but what he would do is first he would have uh, a tape, you know, deck that would have multiple tapes. Uh, so one is, you know, to the single point of failures, if you're going to do backups, either, you know, full or incremental have multiple um, devices. And then what he would do is he would take the backups, the guy who was running them. And when the tape was done, he would walk over to the other building and actually have it stored there. The reason you want to do that, why would you want to do that? Well, say the building where the computer is or the area gets clobbered by a meteor or a fire or, or some catastrophe. Um, having your backup close to the machine you're backing up is, is probably not the best strategy. <laughs> I, I agree. I, I think that's a that's a great move. And I've mentioned before here, John, I do something very similar where uh, I, I do clone my drive every night to a to another drive that's right there at my computer in my office. So, again, if the office burns down or, you know, some catastrophe or theft even happens, uh, you know, all that goes away. But I also have that Ethernet, that gigabit Ethernet that runs between the house and the office that we've now mm -hmm. isolated electrically and usually doesn't blow things up. And it's in the house that I actually store my time capsule. So, uh, you know, it's it, I, if a meteor hits, uh, you know, I guess that might get both the house and the office. I don't know. But, yeah. uh, you know, it, it's something. Another option. Uh, and, you know, we ha this is probably worth, uh, you know, another future show is those online backup services like Mosey and uh, I can't think of others. But Dropbox is a great example. Uh, too, where you're just automatically syncing a folder's worth of files up to it, and uh, and you know that that's yet another way to to safeguard your data. Yeah, or iDisk. iDisk. Yeah, of course, of course, of course. Yeah. So spread spread the love. Just you know, my my only concern with you know any of these cloud based things is uh, security. You know, security. Yeah, yeah. Because if you can get to it, anybody can. So, Correct. Uh, you know, Correct. Like a good password if you're gonna do that sort of thing, or maybe encrypt oh, it. You're supposed to use a password. Well, you can just either leave it blank or use password as your password. Oh, that's good enough, you think? <laughs> For some people it is, which <laughs> kind of frightens me. We we are kidding. Uh, make sure your password's not obvious. And, you know, this is worth another tangent. Um, uh -oh. Yeah, this will make you laugh, John. At one point, uh, way, way back in the day, I worked for a company called Citibank. And uh, I wasn't in the branches. I was in the, you know, in the offices. We were actually working on their original home banking project, which was pretty cool. But anyway, I was in the office and it was like a Saturday that I had to go in and, and do something. And I needed to get a file off of this one fellow's computer. And so I went over to his machine and, you know, turned it on and he had a password on it. And I was like, Oh man. 
I, you know, and, and I could have hunted him down and called him at home and he would have given me the password. You know, he always, it wasn't that, it wasn't that issue, but it was like, ah, oh, you know, this is really inconvenient. He's not here. I need this file. And he had one of those uh, day by day, you know, like a Dilbert calendar or something of the like at his desk. And uh, so I thought, well, all right. And so I started flipping through the pages and, you know, he would go in the future and write like his wife's birthday or his kid's birthday or whatever. And uh, and I got to the one that that listed, you know, his, his kid's birthday and I typed in his child's name and boom, got me right in. So make sure your password is not something that you might even accidentally write down and leave near your desk. Now, in that case, of course, it was brilliant that he did that because it saved him a phone call at home. So maybe he was thinking ahead and, you know, figured that mm-hmm. that was a that was good enough security for him. But uh, but, you know, think about that before you start doing things that seem unrelated and yet give people the answer right there. It didn't it didn't take me more than 30 seconds to get the guy's password. So. It is what it is. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, more follow ups. Right, John. We got all kinds of little goodies that we're talking about here. Uh, Bruce Williamson writes in. This is even in Cool Stuff Found. So uh, for our Geek Challenge a couple of weeks ago, we talked about wanting to, speaking of syncing files, we wanted to sync two folders, but with the same Mac. And or really even two drives, but two folders on the same Mac. Bruce Williamson found... Uh, in case someone else hasn't already sent this to you in response to two gabs ago regarding synchronizing two folders on the same drive is an app called, you guessed it, John, sync two folders. And, uh, the URL is too convoluted to say, so we'll simply put it in the show notes, but indeed it's, uh, it's donation where, uh, they say that it's six pounds, six euros, sorry. Uh, but, uh, but you can, there's Intel and power PC versions and it does exactly what you would think it, uh, well, it, it syncs two folders right there on your Mac. So that, that, that would be, uh, yet another way to skin that cat as it were. Got anything there, John? Got nothing. All right. On to Luis. He writes, I have a switcher question. I've used a Mac since 2005, but as of today, I still can't figure out how to right-click to print like Windows users can. On a PC, you can right-click on a Word document and hit Print from the contextual menu. How can I add this functionality to my Mac's contextual menu? Uh, and and we go from there. So, John, I think you've got you've got this one, right? I've got an 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 the an yeah. answer, not what he wants though okay um so i'll just spit it out sure but but i think it's a it's it's getting close to it um there is a way in both uh, leopard and snow leopard to add keyboard shortcuts uh when they do not exist now the one thing that's weird well we should me. we should talk about the process first before we talk about the keyboard shortcut right well, I just want uh, okay so the process is system preferences no 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 no, no i'm gonna back up uh, so what instead process? of you can't do it in in the from the uh, contextual menu, but you can right. highlight a document in the finder, go to the file menu and choose print. And this will launch the app and then launch the app's print dialog. So if it's Word, Word will fire up on your Mac. That document will load and then you'll get a little print dialog. So that that yes. is possible. Uh, it's not perfect because you've got to use the mouse and go to the file menu and, and all that. So, John, you, you then you then have a way to simplify that even further. There's a slightly better way. So rather than having, so it sounds like the desire here is to be able 
well, to do it quickly. So one way you could do it a little quicker without having to go to the menu, because me that that it sounds like well, he he was willing to go to a contextual menu. So in this case, um, what you could do is go to System Preferences, uh, keyboard and mouse, and then within there there is a keyboard shortcuts selection. And what you can do is you can uh, in both OSs you can add keyboard shortcuts where they did not exist. And this is kind of counterintuitive, uh, but you can do it. And what you do is when you click on, there's a little plus or a little add symbol in the dialog. And when you bring that up, the first menu you're going to get, it's going to say applications. Okay. And well, hey, the first one is finder. Isn't that cool? That's good. And then menu title. And here's the kind of weird part. So there's already a print menu, as you pointed out, Dave, yep. uh, in the file menu, a print selection. We'll put that in there again. So menu title, print, and then you can put a keyboard shortcut in there. Yeah, there what you happens go. Yep. if you do that. So right now I just did this. If I go to Finder, File, I defined it as, and I think you have to make sure, I'm not sure if it checks to see if you're trying to duplicate something that already exists, but here I did Command P. And now if I look at my print menu, now the thing that occurs, why don't they have a shortcut to begin with? Because in most Apple apps, Command P is print, like Safari I looked at and a few others, I'm sure it's there. So I don't know why they excluded that from the Finder. Yeah, that's interesting. But, huh. but you certainly have the ability, along with, uh, I would imagine, any other command, if you either want to change it um, from the default to, to something else, or if it doesn't exist, uh, most, most but not all commands, this is kind of another... Uh, I'll say annoying thing about the Mac when compared to Windows. Windows, uh, I've seen, is very at least keyboard friendly in that you can do pretty much anything from the keyboard. The Mac, not as much. Yeah, that's true. That's true. It, it, or at least you've, you, it's not as apparent. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, now what I'd like, now, now I don't, I'm going to have to dig a little bit because I, I would imagine that there is a way to add a contextual menu item to do this as well. I, I just have to. It stands to reason. Research. I, I agree. There's some. There's got to be some third party utility that that does this. But but again, it's going to be the same sort of thing where it it launches the app and then the app prints. I did as you were going through that, John. It stumbled onto me that there is at least one other way of accomplishing the same thing. Uh, not necessarily any faster, but gives you more control, especially if you have multiple printers. And that is, put an icon for your printer in your dock. Uh, you can do that by going into system preferences and into printers and facts, double click on the printer or printers that you want, and it will launch their little applications. And then once those apps are launched, you can right click on it in the dock and choose keep in dock. And when we say right click, we also mean control click if you don't have a two button mouse. Uh, once that's in the dock, then you can take any file on your Mac and drag it down on top of that printer and let go. It will... Uh, if it's a graphics file, John, I just saw that it will not launch any app. Oh, maybe it did. It launched preview. Yeah, it did. It'll launch whatever app it needs to, just as it does the other way. Um, I just tried it with a graphic file and also a pages file, and it worked just fine with both of them. And it you know, just fired them off to the printer. Never asked me anything if I wanted multiple copies or anything like that. This is not the way to do it because you're not given those options, but it does launch the app, open the document, fire up the print dialog, and shove it off to the printer. So... Uh, if you've got multiple printers, that's, you know, that's a way of picking the printer uh, it, with this process. Otherwise, it's just going to go off to whatever the default or, or most recent printer is, depending on how you have things set up. So we've we've offered a number of options. Hopefully one of those is better than. 
better than a Please hole in the head. <laughs> uh, all right. Let's see where we are here. Yeah, I guess we uh, go on to George, John. Does that sound good? Sure. All right. I got to find George here. Well, not George himself, but. Hey, guys. George from Willow Springs here. Just finished listening to 216. And uh, heard the comments about Apple Mail and Snow Leopard. And I have a new problem, actually two of them of Apple Mail, that came up with Snow Leopard. And I wonder if you have any comment on this. Both of them, one is awkward, one is actually fairly significant. First problem is when I try to delete mail from the trash folder, I can no longer just hit Command A and hit the delete key and have them all go away. What happens now is it takes the first bunch that show up in the visible window, which might be five or six, it'll get rid of those, but it'll leave all the rest of them. And then you have to repeat it, hit Command A one more time, and the delete key. And then regardless of how many are left, it will delete the rest of them. Bizarre. Second, and much worse, is it is saving copies of sent emails in the draft folder on a fairly uh, unknowable basis. All right, I'm going to, you know... Part of the problem is there was a bunch of headset noise there, John. The other part is that we're having that skipping issue. So I'm going to uh, I'm going to see if I can fix that. All right. Yeah, I think we're all right. Uh, so two questions. I'm going to answer number two first, John. Uh, you know, I'm a mail user and, and I've run into uh, a lot of issues with mail and figured out their workarounds. And I think I've got George. It's certainly number two and maybe even number one. Number two, uh, this is a known bug where if you are using an IMAP account, and you go into your mail preferences and tell it to store draft messages on the server. Oftentimes what happens is it, it stores those drafts periodically while you're writing. And then in theory, when you send the message, it's supposed to send it off with some mail servers though. Uh, it sends the message off, but doesn't clean out all the old ones from the draft folder. And sometimes you can have, you know, three or four iterations of a draft that is it saves it at different points in the process that it never goes back and cleans up. Now it shouldn't even be doing that. So clearly there's something in the way uh, mail.app is handling IMAP and drafts and it's, you know, it's not getting an ID that it expects from the server. So it's creating a new instance each time. I, I, that's my guess, but the, that's the issue. So the solution is uh, go into mail, go to preferences, go to accounts, Go to mailbox behaviors and you'll see a checkbox store draft messages on the server. Uncheck that box. And then when you exit out, but don't exit out yet. But when you do exit out, it'll ask you to save changes to your account and please choose to save. Number two, I've never seen, but I'm going to go ahead and guess that maybe it's a similar issue. Uh, and I would at least try unchecking the box that says in the same place, store deleted messages on the server. Uh, and see if that helps. It may be that it's having trouble deleting that many messages from the server simultaneously. I've never seen that. And I use IMAP pretty uh, regularly here, but you know, every server's different or could be different anyway. So that's, that's my thought. You got any thoughts, John? I'm curious. Uh, are there any, I mean, one thing that I'd like to do at least pop sometimes when, when pop doesn't work is uh, 
to, you know, break out the terminal and, and go right into the server and, and do a little magic. And I've had to do this on occasion sometimes. For whatever reason, things get out of sync and a, and a message will appear if you go to the uh, uh, mail server where you can list messages and, and whack them. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes I've seen this, the mail program, for whatever reason, doesn't think it's there, but 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 it's on the server. And, and I'm wondering if they're, I mean, I guess you could do the command line thing as well. And, and uh, I would imagine it's a, IMAP is similar. I haven't done a lot of work with it. but you, you could, though. And I used to do that when I had a pop account all the time. Since I've started using IMAP, I've never gone in and, and talked IMAP, you know, with my fingers, as it okay. were. But but here's two here's two things to do because this brings up two other issues. One is most IMAP uh, servers and and providers that have IMAP servers will give you a web interface. Now that web interface usually isn't anything magic that talks directly to the server. Usually it's simply an IMAP uh, interface with a web gateway. But the difference is when you're using IMAP on your Mac, your Mac is actually downloading and caching copies of those messages. When you go in via a web interface, there's no cache. It's showing you what it's pulled from the server in real time. So so that is one way to see if the server and your Mac are out of sync. Hmm. If that's the case, or even if you suspect that to be the case, uh, if you're in mail and you highlight uh, your inbox or whatever mailbox you want, and you go to the mailbox menu and go down to the bottom and choose rebuild, it will wipe out the copy that's on your Mac and suck down the copy from the server. And and I've had to do this. There's there's a weird bug in mail that, that causes, if you're checking mail from like an iPhone or other Macs, sometimes messages won't appear on uh, in mail.app and you've got to choose rebuild to to make those show up. So that's that's uh, that's another way of doing it. So yet another mail tip. See, the tangents. It's always good stuff in the tangents. Usually. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Depends on who you are, I guess. All right, our second sponsor for this show, and this is their second month of being a sponsor, is a company called Micus. We, we mispronounced it the first time, we, uh, but it is Micus, M-I-C-C-U-S dot com. Uh, they've got a couple of products there, but the one that uh, that we really love here is the Bluebridge AutoTalk. Now, this thing, it's a little box, um, maybe the size of a small clamshell cell phone that's folded up, so pretty small. And it's a Bluetooth speakerphone. Uh, you, it's it's uh, it, it's built to keep in your car. It's got uh, volume buttons and a and a kind of an action button, either hang up or 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 uh, or or answer. And uh, it's got a speakerphone in it and a microphone. It will. It's built to work with the iPhone, but it will work with any Bluetooth phone, uh, as as our own John F. Braun has uh, has discovered. And the cool thing is it's got like a little suction cup mount and it's built. You can mount it right to your, you know, your dashboard, maybe in the upper left of your, not your dashboard, sorry, your windshield. You can mount it in the upper left of your windshield. It's right there. You can hear it. And when you speak, people hear you because you're talking right at the device. The very cool part, it does have a battery. Uh, it's got uh, 13 hours of talk time, according to them, and 800 hours of standby time. But my guess is... You will never, ever have to worry about that because Micus was smart enough to put a solar panel on the back of this thing. So while the microphone and the speaker and the buttons face you, the other side has a solar panel that faces the sun. So you've got plenty of reserve if you're speaking at night, but during the day, you can leave this thing in your car. You can leave it on the whole time because it's just going to charge and go through uh, and, and keep itself alive. So 
it's, you know, if your car doesn't have Bluetooth uh, built into it, man, this is the thing to get because there's it just you, you put it in your car. Once you've got it mounted, you don't even have to turn the thing off. You can just go. Now, you certainly could turn it off if you wanted, uh, but but you don't have to. And uh, and it it's got another cool feature, John, that you're going to talk about because you've used it uh, from uh, in the this is in the Micus Blue Bridge. Mm-hmm. And, and it talks to you, which is nice. And, and uh, one thing that we commented on last time, and this is we, we had just gotten the unit and gotten to try it out. And we stated that it can announce the phone number of incoming calls. But I found another thing that it does and um, by reading the directions, of course, um, what it can also do. And uh, I have an older Crazer phone, so it's not just an iPhone. It'll, it'll work, I think, with pretty much any Bluetooth phone that supports a proper Bluetooth stack, which not all do, but at least Crazer does, is that I was able to suck the dialing list out of my phone. By doing that, I now have the names of the people who are calling me. So, because sometimes, I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't necessarily know your phone number. Or, sure. Well, well, your area code maybe, but right, uh, right. an incoming phone number means little or nothing to me unless it's matched up, which is, I, I think in most cases, you know, with your phone, if it's a number you know, the name of the person will come up. This device will, will do that as well. But you have to do a one-time operation of downloading it uh, from the phone to the device. So I think that's very cool too. Very cool. Okay. So this is, uh, the Micus blue bridge available for $99 and 99 cents from Micus, M I C C U S.com. All right. Off to Phil here, Phil and Phil writes, I have a lot of DVDs that I want to be able to watch in their original quality on my Panasonic flat screen TV. I want to use Handbrake to encode them in such quality, but I want to transfer to my iPod and then connect my iPod 5th generation to my TV using AV cables. Can you tell me what settings would allow this transfer from the Video TS folder on a DVD to a format that I can transfer to an iPod that will have enough quality on my TV? All right. Uh, so I use Handbrake to do this. Uh, and, and Handbrake is, is the app to use. It's available for free. Uh, and it'll do most everything you need here. The setting that I use, uh, they have some presets. And in the Apple section of presets, uh, there's one labeled Apple TV. Once I choose that, then I go over and I choose the iPod 5G support box. That works. However, it's important to note the limitations of the signal path that you're using. If you're using uh, AV cables... I'm assuming you're using, you know, uh, probably composite cables going to your your DVD player from your DVD player to your TV. Now, most DVD players, uh, Blu-ray accepted, are are only at a maximum of 480p, right? So you're not going to get, I mean, that is full resolution for for the DVD itself. The other issue is that the bandwidth on those cables is limited, and it's limited by the number of pixels. So... You may be able to get that 480p depending on what resolution you set it to. And, the, and there's actually a forum discussion that can, we can put in the show notes uh, that, that talks about this because it, it's not just a width or a height that's limited. It's, it's kind of the combination of both. And really, it's you know, how many pixels you, you think you can pump. And then your TV can do the job of, of rearranging them. So, uh, so you can do it. And by choosing Apple and Apple TV, you're getting the highest quality file to your iPod 5G. But uh, beaming it off to the TV, uh, you, you may or you may or may not be happy with the results, uh, depending on on how you're sending it. I'm not sure if there's a 
if there's a component cable for the iPod 5G, I don't think there is because I don't think it would matter. Uh, I don't think the iPod 5G has the ability to to spit out content higher than that uh, or high enough to make that worthwhile. But but that's that's what I found. And that, you know, that that's your best bet to test with and, and see what you get. So you had did you have something there, John? No, I guess the general issue is just, you know, how, how are you going to get a file that, you know, you get high quality when you're on a real TV. But yeah, I, th- I think there's there's no you're suggesting a middle of the road format that, you know, should be okay for for both yeah I, I i mean i think it'll i think it'll work all right i mean you can put the full quality file on the ipod it just takes up more space and the, of course if you're watching it on the ipod itself it's not going to show you full quality because the screen you know is is two inches or whatever but right but uh, I've, I've wrestled with this like one utility that i use sometimes uh you know like if i grab things off the tivo it's typically in you know full hd glory which means like about four gigabytes sure an hour <laughs> right right and it's at a full full bore, thirty frame a second, uh, you know, resolution, HD right. resolution. Um, I use something like FFmpeg X to um, or ten X ten, whatever. Y- yeah, y- you get the idea. That is a utility. Uh, it, it's actually nice. It's a front end to uh, some other lower level uh, encoders. Um, but you can, yeah, to, that does I think some similar handbrake. Is it you know it, you select a resolution, you select the frames per second. It'll resample or downsample the file, which, uh, you know, will be smaller and hopefully of enough quality. I, I've had to, you know, tweak it sometimes or sometimes I've, I wanted to, you know, bring files with me and I just don't have the media or the space sometimes to store a big sure. and you know, gigabyte file. Um, so I downsample it a bit, maybe less frames per second or slightly lower resolution. And that usually um, works out. Yeah, it's important to note that Handbrake in addition to all the other things it does is also a front end for FFmpeg. Uh, it, it uses oh, that okay. as, as part of its conversion. Yeah. It, what it. it also does that uh, I don't think anything else does this in this package is it'll pull stuff off of a DVD and, and, and then simultaneously convert it down using FFmpeg. And, and if you're reading between the lines or if you can't read, if you didn't read between the lines, what that means is it bypasses the security on a DVD and, uh, and, mm. and turns it into a file that you can play on, on your Mac or, or any, any, now that's uh, crazy any talk device. being able to repurpose your, uh, media. Yeah, oh, I know it's not our media. No, it's not. That's right. Your license is such mm. that you're a criminal. If you even can consider doing that. So don't, don't, uh, don't consider doing it. That's the, that's the trick. All right. All right. Do we have time for, we have time for Brad's question. I think it'll, I think this is a quick one. Yeah. No no tangents. Uh Aha. Yeah. Good. Right. That's it. Imagine if we had a no tangents rule. I think this thing would have failed a long time ago, John. Mm. All right. Uh, Brad writes, I have a brand new Mac mini. I've been trying to put some of the kids games on it, but two of them are PC only. I'm trying to run VirtualBox from Sun Microsystems and Windows XP. I get Windows up and running fine, but the problem is with installing one of the games. It's a drawing tablet from Fisher-Price called the Arts and Crafts Digital Studio. When I try to install it, it tells me that my video card is not supported and that the installer is going to quit. The graphics card on the Mini is an NVIDIA N9400M onboard graphics. I did some research and it appears as though VirtualBox is using a virtual video adapter and not the actual video card on the motherboard. When I look in the device manager in Windows, it shows an unknown VGA adapter, but all attempts to update the driver through Microsoft fail, saying that Windows could not find the appropriate driver. 
I tried NVIDIA's website, but they say that any onboard card issues must be addressed with the computer company in question, i.e. Apple. I searched Apple and found nothing. I have 3D acceleration turned on in VirtualBox as suggested by a couple of websites, but this also has not forced VirtualBox to start using the hardware. Is there any way to for force VirtualBox to use the Mini's hardware, or should I do a bootcamp install of Windows? A friend suggested that if I do install boot through bootcamp to use a preference pane edition called Boot Picker, which I found on Apple's website for the Mini to give me the choice of OS at startup instead of having to press control or whatever. So will Windows through bootcamp use the onboard graphics card, or should I break down and get something like Parallels? I am so confused. Please help. All right. There's a couple of questions here, and we're going to kind of go through them in order. Uh, John, I know you've Let got me... you've got his answer, but what I want to point out as a as sort of a meta thing here mm -hmm. is that any of these virtualizers, VirtualBox, Parallels, Fusion, and and I think there's actually even some others uh, that kind of float out there, but but they don't when Windows or any of the software running in them does not see your hardware; it sees the virtual machine as hardware. So when in this case, windows sees a virtual box machine. If you're running parallels, windows sees a parallels computer. If you're running fusion, it sees a fusion computer. It does not know what hardware or software your computer is running. That's up to the virtualizer to kind of pass that through and manage. Whereas boot camp, you're actually running windows on your Mac and windows sees your hardware on your Mac directly. So, uh, so th that's the difference, and that's why the NVIDIA driver is the wrong one to use because, well, John, you, I'll let you take it from here. Um, what he should be doing, so yeah, so I like uh, VirtualBox. It's uh, something that's Sun acquired recently. Um, I like it because it's, uh, you know, like VMware. Um, it's on multiple platforms, and I'd say it's a very good basic uh, virtualizer. Um, that being said, what... A lot of virtualizers do is, uh, or VMs, is when you install them, they usually default uh, as as far as a video card is concerned to something very basic, VGA monitor or something like that, because that's all they know, um, and that's usually not sufficient for uh, you know, especially if you're you know, it's picking 640 by 480 or something like that. It's it's not going to be a pleasant experience. Now, what VirtualBox and others offer. Um, as Dave, I think, suggested, is there's a, a at least in VirtualBox, they call it um, guest additions. And I, I know I've seen this in VMware in the past, and I think that's still part of it, where yep. it's an additional install of Windows drivers that enhance the capabilities of the virtual machine to deal with various pieces of hardware, including the graphics card. And even in the VirtualBox FAQ, um, they had a specific question here. How come it doesn't detect my NVIDIA, ATI, whatever graphics card? And... It, and the answer, in short, is because it sees a virtual graphics card, as you said, Dave. Uh, the FAQ answer is because the guest sees a virtual graphics card, not the host graphics card. Um, it provides, you know, a basic level of compatibility, but and, but what they say here is additional features like higher resolutions are provided by the graphics driver included with the guest edition. So if you're in VirtualBox, make sure that you've added guest editions, and it may, um, the driver may expose enough additional functionality where this program won't be as picky as it won't be, you know, denying you access because you don't have a, a I'm wondering if it's saying, oh, you don't have this resolution, yeah. so I'm not going to work and not, oh, you don't have an NVIDIA or ATI card and I'm not going to work. So right. that, if anything, would address the problem. Uh, or as you said, Dave, I mean, bootcamp is, you are going right to the hardware. You will need, similarly, you'll need, you know, drivers that come with boot camp. 
um, that's right for that particular card. Yeah. Yeah. It's important to note. So uh, maybe another way to explain it, just in case, you know, we haven't gotten the point home yet is if you create a virtual machine to be used with VirtualBox on your Mac, you can then take that same virtual machine and run it on a Windows, you know, on a Dell, Dell box running virtual machine running. Sorry. You, rewind. Let's try this again, because I don't want to confuse terms here. And I, uh, I'll, I'll be very clear. So you could have Sun's virtual box running on your MacBook Pro. And you could create a virtual machine there that has Windows installed and all of this stuff and is set up with all the right drivers to talk to the hardware and working great. You can take that virtual machine and put it on a Dell desktop machine that's running Windows and then VirtualBox inside of Windows and then run your install of Windows and it's going to work just fine. Even though the Dell desktop computer has different graphics hardware from the MacBook Pro. And the reason is the VirtualBox doesn't see the graphics hardware on the machine itself. It sees a VirtualBox driver. And then it's up to VirtualBox on the individual machines to deal with, okay, how am I going to translate this stuff to whatever hardware is here? It makes your installations very, very portable. And for that reason, uh, you know, a lot of people like tech support people use VirtualBox to, uh, or, or, you know, any virtualizers to create uh, portable solutions for people or even in the server world, right? You know, let's say you've got a web server and you know, you want to make sure that if the computer dies, you can take that, that thing and run it on any other computer. Well, the way you do it is you run something virtualized and it could be VMware, or, you know, any, any of these others. And you know, if the machine dies, you take the, the hard drive out, you pop it in another machine. It doesn't matter if the machine has different hardware, as long as it has this virtualizer running on it and boom, you're good to go. You're back up and running very, very quickly. So so hopefully that helps to kind of explain that, you know, these virtualizers abstract that um, that layer out, even even though it's not emulating the processor, it's still talking in the same because it's all Intel now. Right. So we're not emulating, but we are virtualizing. Did, did, I, did I get close, John? I will find out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's um, true. Another thing he may want to do is that in the virtual box settings under display and video, there is a slider where you can. Define the amount of VRAM or video memory. Okay. That may be set too low. That may be another thing that it's looking for. Oh, so, right. You know, right. bump that up to something reasonable. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. I think it starts off at a very small value because. Uh, so sure. try that. Experiment with that as well. That's right. That's Take right. It up to, you know, whatever. I got it at 16 megabytes, but then my, my needs are modest. Yep. Yep. All right. Uh, you know, before we head out, John, there is one thing that we want to. Uh, highlight and 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 show our appreciation for and all of that and that is that itunes just released what they call their itunes rewind 2009 where they pick the best of a lot of different things and in the podcast category uh they pick uh two categories of audio podcasts and two categories of video podcasts the best new uh, audio and video podcasts and then the best classic audio and video podcasts and classic means that you weren't new in 2009 that you've been around a little while and john uh i know that you and i both when we woke up uh, friday morning 
We're both very, very pleased to find, I believe for the first time, I don't think we've been in this in the past, uh, Matt Geekab is listed in the iTunes 2009 Classic Rewind uh, audio podcast section. And uh, we're in very good company there, and it was very, very, very nice to see. So um, I, I believe that's picked by Apple with, with some guidance from uh, the listeners and the ratings and all that. So thanks to all of you for allowing uh, us to continue doing this and allowing that to happen. So, Yep, and I thank our listeners because without you... Um, this podcast would be very boring. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, yeah. No, you, 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 you folks allow us to do what we do, and, and we very much appreciate it. And, and we hope that you find enough here to, uh, to, to take it to the next level, and, and also do the, uh, the premium version and get the extra content and, and help support us in that way too. So we very much yep. appreciate it. And, and you know, Dave, I, I bet you the listeners are, are wondering how they can get in touch with us if uh, they do want to help contribute to, uh, to the show. Yeah, that's right. And by contribute, we don't mean uh, monetarily in this in this sense. We mean with content uh, by asking us your questions or sharing your tips. And that is, uh, well, you can phone us at 206-666-GEEK, which John is... Uh, last I checked, 4335. And Dave, you can also email us. And if you want to email us, either a text, audio attachment, video, well, maybe not a video attachment. Sure, um, why not? Yeah, sure. Okay. We can't, uh, we can't can show send... it on the show because we don't do a video show. But we're happy to no. look at it. Yeah. Or a screenshot. So uh, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever will help us understand uh, what you're going through. Um, yeah. You can email to feedback at macgeekapp.com, Dave. That, did you say feedback at macgeekab.com, John? No, I said feedback at <laughs> macgeekab.com. That's excellent. You can also Skype us to macgeekgab. Uh, and as as we mentioned, you know, the iTunes ratings and iTunes comments, we very much appreciate those, uh, both in the positive and the negative. You know, tell us what you think. Uh, and if you have something you don't want to share in iTunes, of course, you can uh, share that with us privately uh, via any of the, uh, the, the above aforementioned means. Michael oh, Twitter. Shit. Twitter. There you go. Okay. John F. Braun, Dave Hamilton, Pilot Pete, Mac Gab, Mac Observer. And Michael Johnston is on Twitter oh, yes. at Michael Johnston. Michael Johnston of iPhone Alley fame is the one that converts the show into AAC format for your interactive pleasure. Cashfly hosting at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com provides all the bandwidth to get this show from us to you. The podcast marketplace for December includes... The A2 desktop speakers from Audio Engine, Yo Jimbo from Barebone Software, Disc Label from Smile on My Mac, Notebook from Circus Ponies, and the Blue Bridge from Micus, all through the Backbeat Media Podcast Network. It's time to go. Where are we going? We're not going anywhere, man. Oh, that's right. <laughs> we got to record 231, man. Thanks a lot, everybody. Have a uh, have a great week and uh, don't get caught. Made up.